Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 44, we're discussing Excalibur 42, A Hatch is Plotted, and you guys, Alan Davis is back. He is back, and Nightcrawler is great in this issue, and I'm excited. Excalibur 42 was originally published in October 1991, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Excalibur, I call on your power. I know I already said this, but I am in such a good mood today. Um, I was dragging my feet on doing the script for this episode. And by dragging my feet, I mean I spent two entire days making podcast t-shirts and barely had time to eat. (laughs) But anyway, I did procrastinate a little bit because I remembered this being a bit of a weird issue where not a lot happens. And then I reread it and I was like, oh, right. Reading Alan Davis Excalibur is like being wrapped in a warm, heated blanket. And I don't care if there's barely a plot. I just want to stay here all day. And now we are here and we get to talk about this comic with a fab guest which is the next best thing we will get to our guest in a moment but first your regular bounty hunters i am dr anna papard i write lots of stuff about sex and gender and comics and also talk about those things in lots of places like here and on another podcast co-hosted with andrew from this podcast called three panel contrast i remain kurt wagner's unofficial pr manager but now that we've started the davis era i might have to drop that bit because kurt clearly doesn't need my help alan davis is a better pr manager than i will ever be mav what have you got for our lovely listeners this week so, so this is episode 25 of, of Gosh Golly Wow, and everything up until now was just a dream, right? Like, we've, mm-hmm. we've just been having a dream. It's dream like, a little you know, dream. It's, no, it's like on Dallas when you wake up in the shower, and that's a reference. You know, I like I like my dated references, but, you know, this, this episode happened in the 90s, so, like, Dallas is almost current, I guess. Hi! <laughs> um, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I am a scholar of comics and pop culture and media studies, particularly dealing with race and gender and class and stuff like that. And uh, I am the co-host of another show as well, a Vox Popcast, where we discuss all those things, but but about lots of different stuff instead of just um, instead of just Excalibur. So this is sort of my, you know, the extremes of, of what I do. And, and I'm, I'm happy to be here today because, you know, I, I, I think it is a good issue. I think it's it's good. I mean, I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think that I don't have anything bad to say because like it's like, oh, it's like a warm puppy. You know, there's exactly. a, Alan Davis is back and and stuff 
kind of happens. There's a little bit. There's a Tweety Bird joke. There's there's there's, there's promise here. <laughs> it's hard for me to be critical of it just because I'm so oh, yeah. happy to be here. Uh, Andrew, uh, reintroduce our lovely listeners to yourself. Hello, I'm Dr. Andrew Demand, a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont Run. I'm going to be a little bit more abstract than Mav with his puppy analogy, which works really, really well. So this year I betrayed my main subject to do some work on Cowboy Bebop, the classic anime, which I would like to loop into our discussion today in the most abstract way possible in order to describe my feelings on Alan Davis's return. So in my favorite episode of Bebop, titled Jupiter Jazz Part 2, the tragic character Gren, a very rare, dignified portrayal of a queer character in 90s anime, is mortally injured and he begs Spike to put him back in his ship and set it on course for Titan, a planet, technically a moon, tied to better days for Gren. Spike tells Gren that he's not going to make it. He'd bleed out long before he could get that far. But Gren insists anyway. He knows he can't make it home, and it's enough for him to just be heading in that direction, to not have to die in the ruined shithole planet that he's been exiled to. Also, Space Lion plays, which is maybe the most beautiful music ever created for a TV soundtrack. But I don't know how that fits my terrible metaphor, so I'm going to just leave it at that, except to say that I am very excited to talk about this issue. Oh, Andrew, I wanted you to just keep telling me the plot of that story. I was oh, like, this is story time. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. I'm not, I'm not familiar. And I was like, if you want to just continue, I was just going into a, a comfortable story state there. I just assumed that we're going to be introducing Andrew's new uh, new podcast, which you know goes through Actor all of Cowboy Bebop. <laughs> one, one episode at a time. Anyway, that analogy made perfect sense to me, Andrew. Thank you so much. The pod is exuberant to welcome this week's guest who reached out to talk about this issue a very long time ago, and it is finally happening, and we're so excited. We are joined this week by Quentin Harrison. Welcome, Quentin. Hello, everyone. How are you? Good. <laughs> we're in a good mood. We're coming in. We're yeah. coming in strong this week out of Prometheum Exchange. Thank goodness. Yeah, that's um, kind of a bit of a mess, isn't it? <laughs> it was a little bit of a mess. We survived, yeah. but uh, let's was, tell the we'll we tell finished the it like two episodes ago. But it doesn't matter. I know. Like, I, I, I'm still I'm lingering in the pain of it. I know. <laughs> it, it leaves scars. I I, I understand. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I'll tell the listeners a little bit more about you, Quentin. So Quentin Harrison has dedicated his career to bringing critical discourse to the world of popular music. Among his ongoing projects is the Record Redux series, a 10-book set dedicated to resetting the critical narratives of influential but often misrepresented women in popular music. The first five subjects of his book series are The Spice Girls, Carly Simon, Donna Summer, Madonna, and Kylie Minogue. In addition to his books, Harrison has been an active contributor to Albumism.com, crafting a range of content for the site that includes retrospective tributes, new album reviews, playlists, and more. Harrison also co-hosts the podcast Music Out of Bounds and is an avid comic book collector slash reader who says that he enjoys Marvel and DC equally, which is very diplomatic of you. <laughs> yes, I, I try to be. So let's talk a little bit about your background with comics, first of all. I know this issue is important to you. I know Excalibur is important to you. So let's start there. What's your Excalibur origin story, Quentin? Well, I've been collecting and reading comic books since I could remember. I'm 36. And so initially I was a Batman boy. So proud to say um, the first comic book memory I, I remember having was the Batman 89, everything sort of happening around yeah. uh, the first Tim Burton film. And then at that time, Norm Brayfogle was penciling and Chuck Dixon was writing. So those were the books I was exposed to. And then I was into Justice League International at the time and Wonder Woman. Oh, and it was 30 years ago last month 
at the age of seven that I got exposed to the world of X-Men because um, my parents took me to the, I'm from Dayton, Ohio originally. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm are, from Lorraine, you... I'm from Lorraine oh. Ohio. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I usually, say, I usually say Cleveland, but you know, if you're, okay. no, if you're, if you're from Dayton, you know my, my area. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, yeah, we, we Ohio folks, Buckeyes, <laughs> we, uh, we, we, we always spot each other. OH. Um, yes. <laughs> um, my parents took me to the now defunct Toys R Us and um, oh. around what the now defunct Salem Mall. And when you first came in the store, they had like a little like a rack of different like, I guess, impulse buys as soon as you come in. And there was a collected set of comic books for all of the X-Men sort of um, the reset that they were doing in the fall of 91. So X-Factor number 71, Uncanny X-Men 281, X-Men number one for the second volume, X-Force number one. And Excalibur number 42 was in this lineup. And so all of those issues were, were collected. And this, you know, they had all the different teams. So like Wouse, I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Wouse Portacio, uh, you know, Jim, yeah. Wills, yes. Mm -hmm. Jim Lee, Peter, Peter David. David. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> and then the, uh, I'm not really particularly a fan of what's his name, who was writing for X-Force at the time in penciling. Uh, <laughs> Rob Liefeld, yeah. Yeah, I was not a fan of his um, at all. Even then as a kid, I prefer, thank the, for the team switch later on but anyway and then obviously alan davis and this was my first excalibur uh story and so with all of those books i sort of became an x-men marvel convert but i was still a dc boy so what happened is i began going to the local shops dayton is a great comic book town there's a lot of mm -hmm. great shops there and i began working my way back through the back issues so by the time i got to high school i pretty much had an entire set of like all of the like excalibur issues and everything i had like a vintage like Alan Davis poster in my bedroom. I, I, I've been a fan for a very long time. So yeah. And th this particular issue like was is great to me because it represents everything that I love about Excalibur, which is a blend of action and humor and humanity um, and, and usually great art and great dialogue. So yeah, it doesn't get I much better than issue 42. I love that. Well, I mean, can I ask you a little bit about your memories of it from that time? I mean, do you oh, remember gosh. reading this issue? And like, do you remember your reaction? Like, did it feel different from other things that you read? Like, what made it click with you? Well, all of those issues were very interesting, because they all felt in their own way, cutting edge and unique. And I loved like all of the, the, the covers for all of those books were very unique. But I remember absolutely loving Shadowcat's outfit on the cover. I just loved just the look of her. And also by this point, I had been exposed this was right before the animated series started. This was a year before the launch of the Fox series. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing I had was a VHS tape of the old X-Men pilot, oh, Pride yeah. of the X-Men. Yep. <laughs> and I was a big fan of the arcade game during the, in those early years. And uh, so I knew of her with the awful Birkenstock sandals from the <laughs> Pride of the X-Men. But I, so I loved the fact that she was in this when I realized who it was when I started reading it, because I had rented the video, even though I wasn't reading X-Men comics at that time, I had seen that video. And I just loved the whole image, you know, prepare to die. I'm doing the, the <laughs> sort of lisp thing that he does. Um, and just, you know, and I'm like, who's the chick with the spikes? And it just, it was, and I also have to admit, like I had like a, you know, probably a latent homosexual, what you call it. Cause I'm like, wow, like he's kind of now thinking back, he's handsome, like mm -hmm. Brian and, and, and Kurt not knowing, you know, that I was gay at the time. But I just love the whole energy of, of the cover. It just draws you in and makes you want to read. And it just drops you right in. And it has a great pace throughout. And that's what I loved about it. And those memories still stick with me. I literally read that thing till it fell apart. And then obviously, <laughs> I had to go back years later in my early teens at 13 and 
purchase it again to get a, a, the clean copy that I have that I when I sent you the picture um, mm -hmm. when I wanted to reach out to do this episode. So yeah, yeah. I love that book. <laughs> oh, I love that Sorry. so much. That <laughs> no, would be such a great book. issue to jump in on because yeah, you have you open on that domestic space like with the team where you learn so much about who they are in that scene. And I, I want to talk about that scene specifically when we get into our conversation. But yeah, I was definitely thinking too that Davis has always drawn Brian pretty. I feel like when he comes back for this run, he's even prettier. I like I don't know what I'm basing that on, but it's just like, geez, Brian was looking good in this issue. I'm not it's really a Brian girl. It is the hair. His it's the hair. It's the hair. The hair yeah. was epic. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but Brian was definitely looking good in this issue. I loved it. I feel bad because like Brian gets a bad rap, I think, as you watch his character evolve over the course of the books, you end up kind of, like, with, I ended up kind of falling in love with his character later on mm -hmm. um, as I got older. He's a, he's very complex in his own way. Like, I mean, he's sure he's like a hulking brute, a, a hulking sort of brute at times. But I think he's got his own sort of sensitivity issues. And the, and the Braddock family has a lot of problems, like, in terms of just their, like, you know, because I'm a huge Psylocke fan as well. And then Jamie's crazy self. I kind of feel for them. They've kind of, they're all carrying around their own respective sort of neuroses and sort of traumas. And they carry those things into their adult lives. And I think that in Excalibur, Brian is someone I think he means well, but his trauma sometimes makes him into a jerk. And I think sometimes uh, it can cause people to misread him, but he's not a bad guy. I don't hate him. No, yeah, I mean, that's totally, and I think we see a lot more of a sympathetic picture of him in this in this run, too, that's starting now, you know, having a little bit more focus on him as a character and having a more dedicated focus, I think, on his character kind of development, which I appreciate from this run as well. Exactly. But, and yeah, because I mean, when we've talked about him in the past, I mean, yeah, I feel, because we've felt bad sometimes that we're like, oh, we're being hard on Brian, and it's like, we really like Brian as a character and are rooting for him, like, of course I'm rooting for him to be better, but I like the way you put it, Quentin, though, because his struggle kind of with those different obligations of masculinity I think can be really compelling and that's what I enjoyed talking so much about when we did that Colory Duran issue where he and Megan go to the bar right and we talked about sort of his struggle with masculinity in that issue and I found that really compelling. What I love about what you guys do is that I think you are all fair to the characters I think you capture their complexity and I think that's what makes them so interesting they're, they're human and they have you know foibles and stuff but they're also trying to be better people and i think that's why you root for them even when they're being a jerk like oh brian is such a jerk if only he could get it together and and you know yeah. that he will but you kind of have to hang in there while he's being <laughs> a, a jerk you know and there's going to be backslides yeah, absolutely. there's going to be a yeah. lot of backslides yeah. with brian yes and brian yes Next yes but I definitely start to feel for him during this run. I mean, even at the start of this issue, right, where he's got like, you know, the day old beard and he's like looking tired. And I just like, I'm feeling for him even just visually. Um, I want to ask you a question, Quentin, kind of about your music background a bit. And I'm not quite sure how to ask it, but I was sort of interested in whether you see any sort of interconnections between what I want to broadly call pop music culture and sort of comic book culture. I mean, these are two forms of culture that get disparaged in various ways, and they're also forms of culture that have very very passionate fan bases and that i'm not really that into music journalism so i don't want to speak out of turn and if this is not true feel free to correct me but when i think about the work that you're doing over at albumism and some of and the books in your redux series as well i mean even the title of that series right it seems like part of what you're doing and this was in your bio as well was sort of reevaluating culture that hasn't necessarily been respected as high culture as in 
important culture. And I was interested about sort of the connections between even something like what we do on this podcast, right? Like talking about this 30-year-old comic book series and talking about the ways that it's important and elevating it a little bit in that way. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll just ask that general question. Like, do you see kind of links between comic book culture and pop music culture? Um, I absolutely do. For me, they each have their own sort of like rich sort of like their own lore. An artist, like let's okay, say like, yeah. you know, like the the Spice Girls, for example, they have their own sort of universe, their own sort of story and history. Yeah, and I think it's the yeah. same with comic books. And that, and for the people who are clued into that story or that universe, they get it. But people outside of it may not understand. And I think it's the same thing with comic books. So sometimes, like for me, I'm trying to serve two audiences when I do my music. Like I'm trying to serve the people who've been with these particular artist while also trying to open their story up to a broader public or people who may have a passing knowledge of them and sort of to help them if they want to jump on board and learn more and sort of reset an idea that might unfortunately be going on about them that may not necessarily be the case or to create a dialogue if one isn't happening. Believe it or not, like a a lot of what actually helped me inspire my book series was um, a cross between Marvel's um, official Marvel handbook and DC's Who's Who, The Guides which were sort of like where they would do the little dossiers on the characters. And that's how my books are. They sort of summarize the singles and the albums across an entire discography for an artist. I took that from my love of comic books into music. And this is interesting now because the culture is so different. Because like when I was a kid, I would have loved to have sort of done what you what you guys are doing now. But in those days, unless you were a writer or a penciler or an inker, there really wasn't a space for you to go into comic books. Like you had a few historians and things like that, but it seems so far removed. Like, you know, my parents like, well, you're going to graduate high school and you're going to go to college, which of course I did. And my passion for music sort of ran parallel to comics. And I just happened to eventually spin the music thing off into something that I do professionally but I've always had a love of comic book culture. So now seeing how it's such this big thing and seeing that there's this podcast talking about a group of X-Men related characters who don't always get their due because they weren't readily sort of put into the animated series with the exception of Nightcrawler's few appearances. And I know Rachel had one. I don't even think Shadowcat appeared in a regular series until X-Men Evolution. By that point, I was in high school. So it's it's I was just drawn to the fact that you guys have done that here. But to come back and answer your question, I do think there are parallels in terms of sort of getting the story together telling that story for people who are into it and then also trying to to open it up for people who may want to uh, learn more about it but don't have a place to start if that makes sense hopefully I said that all right (laughs) no I do I love that I love that you connected it to the official handbook a subject very close to Mavsart all right let's get into our discussion of this particular issue and we'll start as always with that plot summary Excalibur number 42 opens with Gatecrasher facing a mutiny the TechNet is getting tired of being stuck on Earth their original mission to capture Phoenix at a standstill but Gatecrasher says she has a plan. Something so ingenious, so diabolical, it's guaranteed to destroy Excalibur once and for all. The TechNet is seen gathering around a mysterious, glowy egg. Meanwhile, Excalibur are gathered around the kitchen table at the lighthouse. They've just finished helping with a cleanup after a train wreck, and they are extremely tired. Everyone except Megan, who is enthusiastically making breakfast. Suddenly, one of the eggs jumps out of the boiling pot and bounces off the walls before finally landing and cracking open. Out pops a very angry, not-quite-tweety bird with a timer on its head. Kurt realizes in the nick of time that the bird is a bomb. TechNet watches from a distance as the lighthouse explodes. They're excited, then worried because if the explosion killed Phoenix, they might be in trouble with Saturnine. But when they teleport inside the lighthouse, they realize Excalibur is merely unconscious. Everybody gets teleported back outside where Bodybag starts to digest Rachel until Kitty springs to life, having phased to protect herself from the explosion. The other members of Excalibur quickly join the battle, but disoriented as 
tired as they are, the Technet quickly gets the upper hand. Until suddenly, time stops, at least for the Technet. Excalibur remained mobile to greet Horatio Cringebottom and his assistant, Bert, <clears throat> From the Ministry for Cross-Time Transport, Regulation, Monitor, and Control, Sanctioned Implementation Department, Operating Charter Authorized by Majestrix, Opal Luna, Slatter 9, by Decree of the Supreme Omniversal Guardian Roma, Daughter of Merlin, Sovereign of Otherworld. Very impressive. <laughs> all of, Good job. All of Good those job. names have been important <laughs> in the past and will become important again. Horatio says that he and Bert were sent by Slatter 9 to deliver a message and to examine Widget. Bert decides to implant Widget with a piece of equipment that will keep him from jumping through realities. Bert patches up Widget and Horatio hands Brian a diamond with a message. They then take their leave, telling Excalibur TechNet won't revive for another five minutes. Brian recommends getting in good positions to punch them, but Kurt's got a better idea. He stage manages the fight, positioning TechNet so that when they wake up, they defeat each other. Finally, they play the message on the diamond. It's a hologram of Saturnine telling the TechNet that they're no longer tasked with capturing Phoenix. They're both fired without pay and exiled to Earth indefinitely. Realizing the mutiny is at hand, Gatecrusher has Yap teleport her away. The remaining TechNet members say they'll repair the lighthouse in exchange for room and board. Brian says no, Kurt says yes, and so the answer is yes. Megan kisses Kurt's cheek before scooping him up and flying them back to the lighthouse. Meanwhile, in an alternate dimension, identified as Earth, a floating being demands homage from some humans, but he is killed by Kailun, a cool cat with cool swords. He invites the humans to join him in his battle against Necrom. He also says Excalibur will pay for what they have done. We will be coming back to that story, um, finally. But let's start with those first impressions. So we've already talked, Quentin, a little bit about this issue with you when you first encountered it, but I'll phrase it for you a different time this time, which is, what was your kind of impression revisiting it after the, all of these years? Like, you said that you read that issue so much that it fell apart in your hands, so like, do you remember it so precisely that you just, you don't even have to reread it at this point? Yeah, but I did, um, actually, before I put my stuff in storage for this move, I actually went and actually read that whole arc, like 42 up through Oh yeah, fifty-two. Because yeah, I love that, that whole arc um, during the, or the, up through there, and uh, I, I do love it. It's great. I mean, the biggest thing that sticks out to me is the pace. It's got a great rhythm, a great cadence. It's just the perfect blend of what I think had been missing from Excalibur up to that point while they were sort of searching for, um, I think, the right team to come back to shepherd the book. Because there was a period there where while they had some interesting ideas, um, not the Promethean thing, <laughs> but um, uh, where they just didn't they couldn't get the pulse right. But I felt like they kind of got the pulse back right with this particular issue. And Alan just, he nails it. It's just, the again, rhythmic, got great cadence. Pace is just pitch perfect. I love it. Can I ask you about kind of what particularly draws you to Alan Davis's art? I mean, you obviously read a lot of comics. And when you were reading comics, you already said that certain artists appealed to you more than others. So what particularly draws you to Alan Davis's art? He's right up there with George Perez for me. Um, I'd say George Perez, um, Alan Davis, Barry Windsor Smith, Jim Lee, Norm Brayfogle, and Joe Maduera, and the Cuberts, of course, because Alan had a very distinct style. It was very fluid and very beautiful. And I think he knew how to capture the grandiosity of comic books. So, you know, you get muscles, but you get really cool, like also sort of, I'm trying to find a way to describe this. So like both the male and female figures sort of like are grand and majestic, but then you'll have a situation where he's able to give you a domestic scene, like when they're sitting there in the kitchen, like yeah. I developed a fascination with lighthouses because of yeah. Excalibur. Because, and because he made living in a lighthouse seem really, really cool and glamorous wow. and interesting. And just, I would be like, wow, like, what would it be like to live in a lighthouse? Because I knew what a lighthouse was as a kid, but you know, you're never used to seeing it because that's not a place where headquarters or, or even people 
normally live. And Brian is obviously decked this place out, so it's cool. And I've always loved the energy, but he captures that really well. He brings you in. He's able to create an intimacy with his work. Mm -hmm. So I like that he can switch from really interesting dramatic, like the opening panel when they're on at Brighton on the beach, on the pier, and you've got the lightning striking in the sky and it's really dramatic. And then he shifts to them just kind of being all worn and tired out in the kitchen. And that capturing that space that we normally don't see, like he was doing the stuff that Joss Whedon would do with Avengers in terms of capturing a team after a, a battle or yeah. being involved in something long before we would ever see something like that on television or in a film. And I think Alan just had it. He went on to do some work for the X-Men for a while to the second volume that was great. And uh, I think there's also something British about his look, the way he draws his stuff. It, it has a different kind of energy to me than American pencilers do. And so I think he was just so well suited for doing Excalibur. I just love his work on there. I think the only other artist who worked on Excalibur that I love just as much as him was Carlos Pacheco when yeah, uh, he was yeah. penciling for Warren Ellis. And that had a similar impact on me in that way. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about his art when we get to it, because yeah, it's definitely a high point for me of that later run. But that was such a wonderful way of describing Davis. I'm just so in love with this kitchen scene. Do we actually just want to start mm -hmm. with talking about that? Like, I mean, well, actually, I'll do first impressions from you, Mav and Andrew, because, you know, I want to hear you talk a little bit about you gave some analogies off the top. But what's your reaction to coming back to Excalibur after all this time? I'll give it to you, Andrew. Andrew, because I know we were texting with it a little bit and you were talking about just what a good feeling you had kind of revisiting this issue. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with everything Quentin was saying, right? It's this it's this rhythm to it. I, I really want to, just to say something, you know, different than what Quentin already said, um, point out the confidence of Alan Davis. The idea that you would like come back after a long departure and it's all hyped. It's been advertised issues and issues ago and you get reunited with the team and it's a kitchen scene and then <laughs> very little else happens in the issue. It's, it's an objectively silly issue. It does do some paradigm shifting in the last like three pages, which is what you would expect on page one of like a, a really hyped up artist return like this. Um, and I mean, again, exactly as Quinn was saying, so I'm, I'm cheating already. Uh, it's, just, it's so effortless for him. Do you know what I mean? Like, like he, he takes this road that you should not take strategically and it's perfect. Uh, and I think that's a huge part of just how impressive he is, how he makes everything look kind of seamless. Uh, and I guess the only other thing I want to say um, with regard to Quentin's um, observations about the style, I've always thought that Davis was a British style penciler, but Farmer or, you know, sometimes Austin, they're American style inkers. And I've really found mm. that fascinating in the fusion of those two styles. Yeah. Do you want to kind of expand for our listeners who might not kind of be as familiar with these processes and comic book production, what you mean by that, Andrew? Sure. So, so the British style of pencils, which you, I think, get mostly from 2080, if you want a touchstone for it, um, it it's a lot, for lack of a better term, like uglier. Like it, it's very angular and layered and thin line. So it, it can be a little bit more um, realistic in some ways, but also much more jarring. Whereas the sort of more American style of inking that you see, that I'm arguing you see, we don't have to agree with that, um, is, is all about like, like really capturing shadow, getting high contrast. Uh, and make everything look kind of almost noirish um, stylistically. So, so I, I don't know. I, I, I'm being tangential here. This, this isn't really important. Um, just to say that I, I really think it's kind of cool how Davis's um, work that we see in Excalibur, at least, um, does seem to have this cool fusion of the British and American styles. 
Yeah, I think about the smoothness as bound up in that as well. Like, would you agree? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because yeah, it's such a it's such a smooth style. I find even in the transition from some of Davis's earlier work on the Captain Britain comics to what we get in Excalibur. Yeah, or Miracle Man. Yeah. Mav, do you want to do any first impressions of this issue? Like, what did it feel I, like I, getting back to some Davis content? Same thing. Loved it. I loved it then. Love it now. I've, you can go back and you could tell from even ignoring the Prometheum exchange of it all. From many of the fill-in artists on Excalibur, I've said this on several of our episodes. There are people where I'm like, this is not so-and-so's best work. This is not yeah. Ron Lim's yeah. best work. This is not, you know, many of the fill-in artists are often very clearly rushed on Excalibur. And again, not that I was in the room when, when editorial made these decisions, but it often feels like they they went who's not busy this month can they draw 22 pages in three days and it really comes across sometimes and davis when this happened davis was supposed to be back three issues ago <laughs> and it, it was yeah. hyped and hyped and hyped and like and delayed and we didn't really talk about this on air but like if you think about when the when it was first announced in i can't remember if it was marvel age still or if it was wizard by by then but prop, certainly it was being talked about in wizard magazine by by this point that he was coming back and it really was pimped and pushed and then it shows up and not only does he show up with this very muted you know hanging around this this dinner table scene it is a return to form in ways of he took his time with this this mm -hmm. feels like mm -hmm. okay i'm gonna tell the story that i want to tell and i'm not just trying to get this out so that we can sell a book this month which is how a lot of and he's not the artist but it, it's it's how a lot of Lobdell's stories felt and it, mm -hmm. and that wasn't necessarily Lobdell's fault because Lobdell was writing the story that he was writing and the artists were drawing it in 15 minutes and and this doesn't <laughs> feel like that it, it doesn't and, and so that was refreshing for me and also you know I've said before when we've talked about Davis in the past I was a big Jim Lee fan at this point in my life I still am I have an appreciation I'm saying I'm being very diplomatic i have an appreciation for rob liefeld i understand what he's trying i understand what he's hey, trying I've, to do i've written about him academically so right. I mean, so bye so bye and i and i i think he takes a lot of unfair crap from people like us that rob is making rob decisions and that is what is, and that is what he's, an artist is but no i mean, I mean i'm following saying, his I, heart he really does and it's what an artist is supposed to do right like like mm -hmm. like, like is he the most realistic person no, but neither is Jack Kirby. He really isn't. It might not be for me, but I understand the decisions he's making. And I think what's interesting about Rob is Rob comes from a school of art that was, he was doing his version of the same thing that Jim Lee was doing and the same thing that Adam Adams was doing and the same thing that uh, our McFarlane, like they are, you know, the thin line American artist of the 90s that became Image. That was a school of art. And Davis sort of rejects that. And he also rejects the Mighty Marvel style. He's doing his own thing in a way that was extremely refreshing and fresh at the time. I think there's evidence of it in Pachea later, in Bacalo later. But like at the time, Davis feels like a man on an island. And it's and I loved it. That was my impression at the time. And, I, and it still holds up. I mean, rereading it 30 years later. I still feel great about this. Well, I think it's like that really came across after, because it's not just that we reread those issues. We recorded like hour long episodes on them and I typed up notes and I had to 
edit the episodes and then share the episodes and tweet about the episodes. So I've been doing a lot of talking about the Scott Lobdell fill-in issues for the last like two months. <laughs> and I think coming right. back to this issue and just having, because this kitchen scene feels comforting. It feels mm-hmm. exciting because it's comforting. And especially when I contrast it to that scene that opens Excalibur number seven, 37. So the first issue of Prometheum Exchange, we have a very similar kitchen scene there, right? And it feels so different from this kitchen scene. And, you know, there were a couple of cute elements of that kitchen scene. All the dishes go everywhere and Kurt's like picking up cups with his tail. And I like that in theory, but it's not like this kitchen scene where even from that first panel that you have the team and they're all sitting in their chairs differently. They're all like being tired differently. I know that's what's so perfect about it. Because we're talking about it like, you know, we said it was muted, but Mm. it's muted because it's not a regular, you know, if if this were trying to think of something, who who do I love? I love George George (laughs) Perez. No, I'm just saying, I'm I'm trying to think of an artist that I'm a big fan. It's a good time to celebrate Perez, so please. Yes. And when George Perez comes on to Avengers, oh my God, we're going to have a splash page with 247 characters and we're going to, (laughs) and it's going to be epic. You know, when Jack Kirby shows up and it's going to be epic, there's going to be Kirby dots all over the place. There's going to be, you know, when, I don't know, when Todd McFarlane takes over and over Spider-Man, let me make this larger than life. That's what you do. And when Davis comes back, it's okay. So we're going to have breakfast, you know, we're going to talk about eggs versus toast. That's what we're going to do here. And it feels refreshing and fresh in a way that is very Excalibur. This is a team that is living in this. I mean, Quentin, you talked about it being glamorous. It's too small for them. They're living well, in a yes. lighthouse that's built for one person <laughs> yes. and they're and it's built for just Brian alone. Brian plus his girlfriend, okay, fine. Brian plus his girlfriend, his three co-workers, kind of tight. And now we just invited eight other people to live here. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> like, like, like it's it's amazing. And it works because Davis is just saying, ah, but that's just another day in the life of Excalibur. You know, like that's, I I love that about this. I love everything about this issue. Okay, so just quick question to come out of that. Are we seeing the tower as a metaphor for Brian? The idea being that he lets these people into his life by force and that's how he evolves? I think that's true with the next issue. I don't want to give too much away. I think that symbolizes a lot what happens with him in that moment. It should be important. I wonder, maybe for Quentin, because it's your, I mean, it's one of your favorite issues. Not, but I, even, I guess it's for your favorite issue because it's one of your first, but also you've read it till it fall apart. So, like, to me, it really stands out, especially, you know, reading it critically as I, as I was this time. Brian says no. And this, sh- this should matter because, again, we give, we give Brian a lot of crap, but it's his house. He owns yeah, it. It's yeah. just his house. He and Megan aren't married. It's not Megan's house. You know, yeah, I get that everyone lives here, but this is his home and they invited, a whole bunch of aliens who were trying to kill him, you know, 15 minutes ago to live in his house. And he said, I don't like this idea. And they're like, nah, but we're going to do this anyway. That's not cool. That's like, I do kind of love it though. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. But, but I mean, my my point is just like, we're in, we're on Kurt's side because we love Kurt. Yeah. Kurt is wrong. This is Brian is 100% in the right here. (laughs) Like like everything about what Brian says is Brian's like, I don't think there's room for these people that I don't know to live in my home. Please stop. And they're like, nah, but what if they do? Okay. <laughs> so, But that's partly where Brian becomes identifiable in this arc, though, I think, because I think that that Brian and Kurt exchange at the end of this issue is a really good example, again, of what Quentin was talking about, that, you know, the characters are complicated. I don't think Brian or Kurt are right. I think they're both kind of wrong, but they're like really? sort of, well, 
I mean, in the sense that they can't just leave the tech net to their own devices. I think that that's not a good decision. I also think having the move into the lighthouse isn't a very good decision. So, I mean, I don't really think either of those things really hold up to me as good choices. But at the same time, I can get where both characters are coming from. And I do get why the rest of the team would side with Kirk, because that seems like a good character read to me, even if it doesn't necessarily seem logical. Yeah, I just think Brian's right, because I, you know, because I own a home. (laughs) (laughs) you know i I own a house and i just can't imagine someone inviting someone who just tried to kill me to live in my house oh no for sure again that's why i think kurt is wrong because like i mean when brian's like that's not a baby that's a super powered alien it's dangerous and like they're just like oh and i'm like no he's right he's right (laughs) i think what's interesting i've always found about the x-men in particular is that it's a group of adults young adults living in a space and in many respects i mean like obviously like initially the x-men's sort of thing was sort of high school slash slash college but with excalibur you have these adults with the exception of brian and megan who are a couple living together who probably otherwise would not live together and so i think that it isn't so much that i don't see it as brian or even kurt being in the wrong i think it's a failure of communication that's what i love about these comic books is that when you read the story it, i mean you get the action and stuff but it also is a great sort of mirror for human behavior. What happens when people aren't talking to each other, they're talking at each other. They're not thinking of other people's feelings or considering. So yeah, they wear a costume, but like they're still humans and they make mistakes or they make or they presume to know things. And that's what I love about the X-Men books in particular and specifically Excalibur, especially at this point. I felt like a lot of the human element was lost in that space when um, they were transitioning, that when Scott was filling in for them and some of that element and they just kind of got sucked into the time caper thing which was great i love the christ cross time caper but i think a lot of sometimes the human elements got lost in there and so now we're kind of bringing them back down to just being sort of this british-based superhero group who is sort of their existence is happening i always sort of thought it was interesting when i went back to read that they were sort of out of commission when the whole Muir Island saga was happening in X-Men. So all these awful things are happening to the other teams, but they're sort of out of pocket somewhere else. So now they've come back from that. And even though they're sort of having their adventures, it's sort of separate from them. And so they're having their own, like the X-Men are off having their own sort of adventures and both with each other, their intra adventures as adults and so are Excalibur. I just think that's interesting. Like, you know, they come in from like this sort of big train wreck thing and, you know, you get to sort of, like you said, you see that the different personalities come through right then and there, how they answer in terms of what they want for breakfast. Because I think Rachel is the one who says, I want it liquefy, I'm too tired to chew. I think it's the line that she <laughs> says. And it just, and so it epitomizes like, yeah, here's this, this chick who wears like high heel spiked like hounds outfit, right? And who controls a cosmic entity, but she has great comedic timing yeah even when she's tired and so i like that that juxtaposition between again the grandiosity and the intimacy and i think Mm -hmm. that that's what's what i love about this in in terms of seeing how they communicate with each other for sure and i mean i i love that about superhero comics too the way when a superhero team is sort of at its best and we can see those individual personalities come out it is exactly what you're saying right it's sort of um a thought experiment of like the ways that different relationships work because i think about that a lot with superpowers right like the 
different collisions of different types of superpowers are thought experiments about how one type of power collides with another type of power. And so when you have these people in this compressed space with these distinct personalities, and it's a high pressure environment, and then with the metaphors of superpowers laid on top of that, it becomes a really interesting space to kind of test out different affiliations. And I mean, that always becomes something that I find really interesting with sexuality, right? The different ways that we identify and desire different characters in these spaces and the ways that it gives us different opportunities to experience different types of desires through kind of how interesting those interactions are. And I mean, you know, that gets us back to questions, uh, to conversations that we've had, maybe not super relevant to this issue, but I think we're just so excited to be back with Davis that this stuff keeps coming out. But, you know, that way that it's kind of an intensely sexual space too. And I mean, that gets back to even the character modeling that Quentin brought up before, right? The fact that all of these characters in different ways are erotic objects, sort of compelling different types of gazes and allowing us to experiment with different gazes, which characters are looking at which characters, which characters desire which characters and stuff. And, you know, it's such a complicated environment with the nature of Brian's girlfriend sometimes transforms into Kurt and what's going on there. And of course, the Kitty and Rachel (laughs) relationship as well. There's just so much that goes on in this space. And again, so much of it for me is just captured in something like that single page kitchen scene, which is not that that scene is about sex or something like that. But again, just like the specificity of the characterization, the moment for Kurt that obviously I love is just they're listening to the radio and then he gets so worked up about how but the rescue workers who don't even have superpowers are the real heroes and he's like so upset and it's so dumb and it's so exactly him because he's a character who really believes in heroism it's important to him I mean that's the fight that he has with Brian where he's giving the speech and sort is drawn where he's really talking about himself and it almost models kind of fandom of the character as well for him to be sort of that serious about heroism and who's the real heroes because if you invest in Kurt as a character that's kind of what you're investing in too because he's a very optimistic very aspirational character and that just Mm -hmm. exactly comes across in this little moment everybody's just so in character to me so this is maybe just headcanon but speaking to that same sort of effect that that scene that's like the last Excalibur scene where Megan is taking Nightcrawler away saying Brian's not the jealous type and Brian is making stink face just after being overruled (laughs) by the team in my head canon, what's happening in that scene is Brian is realizing for the first time that he's not the leader of Excalibur and that he never was. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. That's a really, that's a great assessment. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have kind of that throughout this issue. And I mean, even down to the ways that Brian is kind of humiliated by Kurt, almost in a way throughout this issue. And I don't mean that Kurt's doing that on purpose, but it just kind of happens. Like even with the thing where the egg flies out of the pot and then Kurt's got the reflexes and he says duck and then the egg hits Brian in the face. Right? (laughs) That's the look on Brian's face. (laughs) So good. So good. And that's perfect, right? Because I mean, that speaks to both character and their bodies, right? Kurt's got the superior reflexes and Brian doesn't have to because he's impervious to everything. So that makes sense. But But it still sucks. He's impervious, but like you don't want that to happen. Yeah, of course, of course. And then like the thing later, of course, where Brian's like, well, we'll just punch them when they come to. And Kurt's like, no, I have a better idea. And then Kurt's just like delighted. And like, it's like sort of his time to shine and everything. So Brian kind of gets these moments throughout this issue, like all kind of building up to that final panel. I think it's a great assessment. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about TechNet because we've been talking about unique characters and stuff and we haven't had TechNet for a while. And I wanted to ask you about them, Quentin, because we've brought up on the pod before that we find them a very compelling villain team. We talked about the visuals a little bit and that kind of thing, but you must have an affection for them. This was your first issue of Excalibur. You got to encounter TechNet for the first time and all of their wackiness. What do you kind of make of them as a villain team? Do you find them a compelling team? I actually, when I was younger, I was I was really drawn to sca- uh, Scatterbrain because I just mm. I thought her blast was pretty. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I liked Fair. the way her lower half changed colors. I thought that was really cool. Mm-hmm. But um, Gatecrasher was just awesome because she's strong, but she's sassy and but she's kind of glamorous. And so um, yeah. it kind of reminded me like of Ursula from The Little Mermaid. But if Ursula yeah. like had two yeah. legs versus like tentacles. But yeah, just really cool and quick on her feet. And this was an interesting team. Like they're funny and they're kind of bumbling idiots. But they're actually still very dangerous when they're if they're just coordinated right, which in this case they were they were very dangerous and Excalibur was kind of getting their heads handed to them, which I think there's always different points in all the X books where the teams, even if they're organized, they have that one or two battles where they literally just get their heads handed to them. They just get like mopped. And I felt like I was like, poor Excalibur, they're getting mopped here. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, they're great. I, I love them. I think they've, they've always been interesting. And um, when I went back to read them and obviously the Excalibur one shot, the first one, I love them even, even more then going back so yeah they're they're great i could just yeah. sing the phrases yeah <laughs> the thing course. that i kind of like about them as an excalibur villain is just the extent to which they threaten dignity specifically okay like the way okay. that their powers are based in transformations that are mm-hmm. um you know either gross or um maybe too intimate and illuminating of who you are as we saw with like the nigel frobisher aspect so in, in a book that does a lot of work with like pratt falls and we've already talked about brian getting the egg in the face i think it's cool to have a <laughs> villain that is so capable of humiliating the hero in a very literal way oh i love that they're very dynamic to look at and very and very alien like we don't know like obviously they're from different i'm assuming planets or dimensions you know they didn't really spin off to ever explain you know where they come from at least not that i'm aware of in my time being a fan of the book so that's what kind of makes it interesting is like is there a whole planet out there full of china dolls or waxworks or ring toss people you know what i'm saying just like these really weird creatures you presume there are because Pharaoh has a twin brother that looks exactly yes, like him. Yes, this is true. Pharaoh one, Pharaoh two. Yes, this yeah. is true. <laughs> and um, and the book does this book does say that body bag. This isn't a power. This is just what his species does. Mm-hmm. So presumably there's a planet full of joy boys and china dolls. I, I guess maybe or I, I mean or maybe not. Maybe they're mutants on their planets too. We don't know, right? I think. That- Kind of what I assumed. I thought that they were probably like the Imperial Guard, where they like they do come from a race of people like them, but they're also sort of super beings in that context. But I mean, that's not something that we get in the text. It's just something that I'm like reading into it. It's so telling about Anna that like you're, you know that you use the Imperial Guard rather than the Legion of Superheroes. As oh your... well, yeah, I'm sorry. Because <laughs> <laughs> the Imperial Guard is just the, I know. the Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> I'm not I'm not as big on my DC as on my Marvel for sure. But yeah, I love Gate. Like I really was thinking about my affection for Gatecrasher when we had Technet come back in this issue and just I was surprised by how important it was to me to see her again and I was thinking about why and I just I think seeing, you know, and she identifies herself as a female character. She's a female character in this space with an unconventional body and I mean characters comment on her unconventional body all the time, which the volume of comments is a little uncomfortable. Um but at the same time, she 
you know, as Quentin was saying, she's a character who's very spectacular, who, you know, despite all of these comments about her body, that's not how she feels. You know, I think she is incredibly comfortable with her size and strength. And that's a point of pride for her, because that's certainly how she presents herself, how she carries herself. Like, this is a character who loves being who she is. And I think that joy comes across. And she's a bad person. <laughs> but like, yes. She's like... I mean, that's charming about her as well, though, because, I mean, the number of ways of being female in the world that she's resisting through the ways that she's chosen to be in the world is refreshing. And I love those little asides that we get where, you know, we get um, Horatio and Bert, or I think it's Horatio, Cringebottom says something about, oh, he's encountered Gatecrasher before, a thoroughly objectionable individual. So, you know, (laughs) she's got like this rap sheet across the multiverse and all of these stories that she's been involved in that we don't know about and like those little asides about her entire life that we're not seeing on the page is intriguing to me as well i just i love her as a character well so can i ask a question then that's gonna betray a little bit to Mm -hmm. the reader about like behind the scenes because unlike the our listeners i i can see anna's notes so (laughs) (laughs) so therefore i want to ask you know you have an argument that gatecrasher is the protagonist of this particular issue do you buy that or is it a or is it a just a topic of discussion because I can see it either way no I wouldn't make that as an argument necessarily I mean that was true of Excalibur 15 like the apartheid allegory one very much so yeah I mean not so much here although we get little snippets of her perspective here I mean you know (laughs) we're reacting along with her to the idea of the mutiny right so but yeah I wouldn't say that she's the protagonist of this story necessarily although I think that she is given not as much as she was back in issue 15, Mm -hmm. but she is given enough for us as readers to care about her as a person as opposed to, I mean, much of Gatecrasher's purpose in the story is as mustache twirling villain, right? Like, I think she's deeper than that, but even this story is pointing out the why is she chasing Rachel exactly? Because that's what she does. And it doesn't even make sense in the storyline anymore because it's like clearly Saturnine doesn't care. So why is Gatecrasher still chasing? And so I like that the story is giving us some characterization for Gatecrasher. I don't know that I would call her the main character. I think a lot of, I, I, I don't know that, I don't know that there is a protagonist for this issue. This is very much a setting up Davis's new status quo kind of issue but i do think that gatecrasher very much is a character that we are getting to see as a point of view character in a lot of ways here more so than we expect out of a villain particularly out of a second rate villain which is you know i might love her but she is she's not she's not an a-lister right yeah but i mean even the care that's done throughout the issue with her facial expressions and stuff you know she has these kind of delighted expressions when things are going their way and stuff and i think that's where i'm coming from in terms of like that joy that she takes in her existence i think that that's really important and is communicated really well visually for me it's the joy that she takes when she creates tweety bird slash henry like the like i have done it you know like there's a lot of joy in her depiction there it's really good um let's talk a little bit about the science in this issue uh Uh, because it's not really my forte, but it is a big part of this issue. And uh, I imagine some other people on this podcast probably have thoughts about it. So I will let you weigh in on it. I'll ask you, Quentin, first, if you would like, do you are you interested in kind of the science fictional science that goes on in this issue? Was that part of the hook of this issue for you? You know, what's funny, this title popped into my head, and I've been meaning to buy this book for 21 years, and I still have yet to get it. Um, It is called The Science of the Mm X-Men. Do you know what I'm saying? You guys know 
know what I'm talking about. This I was no, in high I've school when this read. Yeah. and it I knew it sort of tried to summarize what was or was not possible in the books. And I always wanted to buy this book when I was in high school, see it at Barnes Noble, and I just never got it. I need to just get on Amazon and, and snatch a copy up. But like for me, I mean, obviously there's some suspension of belief. But I think also you have to you put yourself in that world. So obviously in this world, certain things are plausible or could happen that normally wouldn't happen in our world or it's kind of like I always say imagine our world as it is except these things can happen there's a big sort of cloven hoofed is is she kind of cloven hoofed uh gate crashers feet or kind of is the way yeah yeah she you know it's it can work so I mean for me I like it I think it's sort of a fantastical element though I actually always liked that uh Brian we don't really see a lot of his scientist stuff for a while I think that manifests later, but um, how it comes through. But as it relates to this issue, I think the science of it is interesting. Um, I think it sort of serves as sort of like a slightly comedic, but at the same time, fantastic element. Because I like when, is it Bert opens up Widget and it makes that really, really cool, like pink laser light display. And, <laughs> and it's really, really interesting. Plus, I as a kid, I was obsessed with his shoes that said Bebop, because obviously wherever he was from, he had these like really cool like fly sneakers or high tops. Yeah. And I wanted a pair of those so bad. Um, as a seven-year-old, but obviously there were no shoes that looked like that at seven. I mean, the closest I was going to get were LA lights, right? Um, But yeah, some of it just, I mean, I think Alan sort of takes it and just takes the science thing and makes it a really beautiful, interesting aspect. But I imagine there were some kids who really got into this like I did, but it may have inspired them to go get into science because it just was rendered in such a way it made it, it might've made it a compelling subject. As a story, as a function of the story, I just love reading it. But like, again, you just have to put yourself in that world and sort of just accept that these are the things that can happen versus yeah. imagining it not happening in our space, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the visual of the everything fitting into the little box is definitely my favorite thing, right? I mean, it's like Katz's magic bag, right? I mean, that idea of, or, you know, TARDIS and Doctor Who or whatever it is right the idea that there's this universe inside a box is very compelling but um mav do you have thoughts about the quantum mechanics or physics of this issue or whatever you want to call it because i i'm happy to let you talk about it i i feel differently about it now than i did then so in 1991 i was much more likely to be the kid who was more concerned with the consistency of the science of one issue to an, to the next. And this doesn't work, right? Like part of the joke yeah. of this is when they open up Widget, they're like, this is rotting food. It, it, like <laughs> like basically whatever Tweedle D- Dope did when he first made Widget, like, nothing was done. He just shoved a bunch of crap together and then presto, it's a robot now. This doesn't make sense. And this book acknowledges the senselessness of that. And that bugged me at the time. It bugged me a lot because, really? oh yeah, because, so if you go back, like when we were talking about quantum mechanics on the show and like things like that, I actually learned, I initially learned those because I was a comic book geek. I wanted to know how Reed Richards theory on time travel worked. So I went and learned how it worked in real life. And this book is saying, no, none of that matters. It's just stupid magic. Deal with it. And that bugged me as a grown up now who does this for a living and has seen transformations of Marvel and DC and how many crises going on and battle worlds created and you know i I don't care anymore 
I, I <laughs> like I, I don't. And it, I'm more interested now in the storyline reason, sort of the, you know, there's there's sort of a cool postmodern thing that's going on here where Bert like basically says very metatextually, this shouldn't work. I don't understand this. I'm a scientist and this doesn't work. And that's part of the story and the acknowledgement of it as part of the story interests me more now than the lack of science understanding. Because what he's saying here when he tries to explain it to Kitty, that's nonsense. Like a lot of the earlier stuff, Claremont used to try a lot to like try and make his science make sense. We talked about the official handbook to the Marvel Universe. Peter Sanderson and Mark Grinwald, who wrote the, the bulk of those official handbooks, their life was trying to make all of this crap make sense. Bert's spewing nonsense here. None of it matters. And then he's like, I'm, here's my nonsense, but it doesn't match up to any of my nonsense. And so I'm confused. I'm sort of blindly accepting of that in a way now at 47 that I wasn't at 17. Huh, that's interesting. Andrew, did you have thoughts about it? Uh, yeah, I'm in a similar boat, maybe a more charitable <laughs> boat. I, I completely agree. The, the science here is nonsense. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And it is a little bit of a, a letdown in terms of there was an already established scientific thread to the book that has been abandoned, as Matt, I think, is saying. Um, but I do like Widget being sort of um, emblematic of Excalibur, right? Hence the t-shirts. Yes. Um, <laughs> having those two aspects existing without contradiction, fantasy or magic uh, mm, and science mm. or science fiction. Um, and, and yeah, so, so, so to me, it's not as hand wavy. It doesn't bother me as much. I think it's actually a cool example of um, fantasy science fiction fusion, which was a genre that was kind of just coming into its own um, when this this book came out. You think so now or you think so or you thought so then? Because I, I agree oh, with you question. now. Yeah, now I definitely I'm like, oh, OK, this is cool. Like, I like it, but I had problems with it. I mean, to be honest, I just had problems with that happening 30 years ago in a way right. that I'm, I'm that I'm, I mean, I'm not precious about it anymore, but I can see how some readers might be. I, I, I don't will even remember say that my initial reaction yeah i mean i will say when i was typing up the notes for this episode and i did read Bert's dialogue very carefully to make sure that because i was like is there something important going on here in the dialogue that i should no. kind of make sure that i keep track of? <laughs> and no, it's no, very no. it's very nice of you to say that it just doesn't make any sense because i really was trying a little bit I was always able to roll with it. I mean, I remember the first time I read it and kind of, I guess maybe, yeah, I did have a little bit of that frustration, which is, I guess, what I'm still saying now, which is that I did think that there was supposed to be some tease here about the real nature of Widget, but as I'm reading it, I'm not actually sure if that's there. Especially since knowing what happens, it's not. I, I mean, I'm trying to not spoil anything for the audience, but I know what Widget is, and I have known what Widget was the entire time we're doing the show, and what's actually happening here, completely unrelated. It's just techno babble. It's it's words thrown together in order to sound cool doctor who style which by the way is a show that i love now <laughs> that i didn't care for that i didn't care for back then so you know like doctor who will just say some nonsense and he and he or she will say nonsense that contradicts two episodes ago all the time and then when when people call her on it saying you know but that contradicts what she says and she says yeah wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff doesn't matter sure so i'm fine with that i'm, I'm okay with it now <laughs> yeah i mean i was wondering if there was like some hint at widget having a semi-organic existence in some sense in the sense that he runs on organic materials and then they're not really sure why that's the case and then they have the question of like is it life force and i kind of thought that was gesturing toward what will eventually be revealed as the nature of widget but i'm, I'm being too generous probably I, I can chalk it up to being too generous <laughs> i, I 
have to say that I love that when he comes back together, he has those really kind of sad puppy oh, eyes and he just lets out a solitary eat <laughs> after yes. it's all over, poor thing. And uh, I just love that. And then he just sort of floats over to Shadowcat, who's just kind of kind of holds him, you know, very yeah, tenderly. I know. Um, like I said, because I think some of the other X books were heavier. Um, Excalibur always had that nice counterpoint where it was more fantastical, but I think sometimes people dismiss those elements, uh, the fantastical elements, sort of sometimes they didn't, there were other serious things happening within the Excalibur books too, but I like that they could have that tonal variance, but still have an overarching sort of vibe too. So I think it, it, it sort of works really well. I mean, yeah, I wanted to say just on that note of Widget, I'm glad you brought that up, Quentin, because we do get some sort of reflection on the nature of Widget sort of as a character for the other characters in this book. He is treated with a lot of compassion here. And like, I wouldn't say fully as like a member of the team, because if that was the case, they wouldn't let somebody disassemble him. But at the same time, they're like worried about him. They're like, there's something wrong. What did you do to him? Right. And like that, that's sort of interesting to me. I don't think it's fully played out here, but it interested me. I agree with you. I think it is a little too easy. I think Bert gets away with just like taking apart Widget. I mean, Megan's like, oh, don't hurt him. Oh, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, I, I know. Mean, that's like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm just like, okay, most charitably, the Widget is a pet, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, if they believe that Widget's not quite alive, you can't take my cat apart i'd be very yeah, upset yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and frankly and, fr- and frankly <laughs> i'm sorry Maybe right I have. like i love my cat right but like like even if i think that widget's less intelligent if someone just shows up some weird strange dude that i've never seen before is like hey we need to take apart your car right now N- no you don't you, you don't get to do that right like and then if it's if it's more important you certainly can't take apart one of my friends or you know family members the fact that they're just it there is a lack of caring i mean they care but there's a there's an ease by which they don't resist the yeah we're just going to take apart widget yeah and too late we're, we're we've already started don't worry about it and you know like had somebody tried to do that to lockheed kitty would be murdering them that's true it's true yeah that's fair that's fair uh can i come back to you quentin just to ask you just a little bit briefly like about the humor of this issue because this is an issue that like leans pretty hard on the humor i mean we have like a tweety bird bomb as the inciting incident right and you brought up kind of the pacing of this issue a few times and the ways that excalibur is kind of able to do some of that genre bending that we've talked about before i mean what was your mileage on the humor in this issue like did you appreciate that humor like when you first read it well as as a seven-year-old i mean the slapstick is hysterical i mean it's what is when the fist is going into what is his name his name is escaping me but he says flub-a-dub when he's being punched yeah thug as he's being punched and it's hilarious or um when the egg hits poor brian in the face or just even just the facial expressions as they're watching the egg open you know and and his his lisp it's just really ridiculous and it's just it's it's funny and then you know obviously i'm a i just love lockheed because lockheed is just amazing so even though he doesn't get like a lot of screen time or as as it were in this book he's funny it's just it's it's great and then i think as you get older you catch all the more sophisticated stuff like some of the more like the conversation and things the in the way the dialogue like i said when rachel says uh i'm too tired you know i just want to I, I can't chew. It's just, it's funny. It's just, uh, yeah, I think it's a, a nice mixture of slapstick and a little bit of dry wit, a little, little bit of everything in there. It's kind of like a, a little, I won't say a potpourri, but it's a, like a little, <laughs> there's a little sprinkling of everything in there. I think there's something for everybody. Because even, I, I love that image of them 
it's it's funny, but it's so cool when they're sort of recoiling back. And what is the line uh, that he says, uh, or Phoenix says, go ahead, give us a real laugh. Try and take mm. this while we're conscious. And I love yeah. that the look of them, they're so powerful, but then yeah. the technique's kind of recoiling. So it's kind of funny, but sort of heroic at the same time. It's great. That's such a great panel. Yeah, that one where she's in sort of the Phoenix fire and everybody's kind of doing their, well, Kurt's doing an absolutely great He's doing the face. There, He's doing yeah. the face. The Nightcrawler yeah. face, as I call it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that face. I love when he does the Nightcrawler face. I love that. Yeah, it's a great one, too, because they, like, shade out his whole face so that it's dark. So it's a really, like, truly, like, kind of devilish grin. It's so good. Yeah, I love that. I love it. Yeah, I really love, I think for comedic moments, and maybe that could be a good thing that we close on, but my favorite one is the three panel sequence where Gatecrasher is punching Brian in the face. Oh, <laughs> whap, 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 whap. Yeah, that yeah. was great. Yeah. <laughs> and then she freezes. Yeah. And then we get that great like thing where she's frozen for two panels and like Brian, you know, takes a moment to react. See, that's just perfect comedic timing. Like that's what makes the humor in this comic work so much better than like, well, the character humor works for me in this comic better than it did in Promethean Exchange because it extends from character but also just the skill in terms of the timing to do a joke like that you have to like bring it with the art and of course davis does yeah i, I think the timing benefits greatly from having davis be not just the illustrator but also the writer mm -hmm. and he can, he can synchronize that to perfection which i mean it sounds obvious but he's writing for himself yeah we're going to talk quite specifically about sort of davis's visual storytelling in our next episode with a guest who'll be very good at speaking to that but um let's move to final thoughts unfortunately and i'll let you have the last word quentin but I'll start with you, Andrew. Anything that you're desperate to talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Uh, yeah, one thing. Um, the the two page. We're, we're calling him Kiloon. Is that? Oh yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I that's what Kylan? I. That's I, I looked it up. I really? couldn't find anything. I call him Kiloon. That's what I, 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 I think that's what I called him as a kid too. Yeah, just to kind of it made sense. Anyway, the the sequence is really good at being this sort of um, iconic heroic entrance and against imperialism. And I'm not just going to save you. I'm going to educate you so you can save yourselves. And then we'll go destroy this bastard's Excalibur, which is a really cool lead in because Excalibur, even just through the cross time caper, they, they have so much potential for butterfly effect damage, right? So our, our minds are just wandering in every direction. What did they do to piss this guy off? Um, so I, I think it's a great kind of, um, um, I don't know, cliffhanger, I guess would be the easiest way to describe it and creates a nice new form of tension that we haven't seen in the book uh, and um, contrasts really nicely with the sort of jovial tone of the the gang that we saw in this episode. Absolutely and I think it's very satisfying to even though we don't necessarily know who Kailun is yet we do because we've read ahead but still <laughs> the fact that a lot of these threads are getting brought back and you know the fact that the cross time caper is going to have consequences is interesting because i mean that's the case with the why we're fixing widget at all too right i mean they have to fix widget because of these cross time violations so i think mm -hmm. it just feels really satisfying to get to this issue and to have some of that brought back and to feel like we're actually going somewhere and connecting some of these things that have been happening i think that's another thing that even if this is a little bit of like setup in this issue for the for me those elements of the issue are really satisfying uh mav any stuff that you're desperate to talk about that we didn't get to I wouldn't say desperate. I love that um that the cover is 
set up for this great villain that is really just a one-page sight gag about Twitty Bird. Like, yeah. So Hardboiled Henry, well, there's a couple things. First off, Hardboiled Henry is really only on one page of the book, the cover, and then one, one page for this adorable Tweety Bird-esque villain that's only Tweety Bird because Alan Davis wants to make a joke about Tweety Bird. But I do think it's worth <laughs> noting that as far as we can tell, there is non-determinate gender about Hardboiled Henry. He refers to himself as Henry, and some people say he. Gatecrasher explicitly says she. It's interesting. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, which it's interesting to me because and I know it's a very, very specific, weird academic interest, but I am very interested in um, how people gender real Tweety Bird because real Tweety Bird is canonically male, but uh, most people, because of his obnoxious amount of cuteness, tend to read him as female. Both of you will remember back when we were having questions about the gender of the gargoyle during Inferno, I ended up doing this whole big Facebook and Twitter poll where I was trying to figure out where people place non-specifically gendered comic book characters and um, and Tweety Bird's always one of one of one of the interesting ones. So that yeah, is that interesting. Hard boiled Henry. <laughs> I'm grateful you're pointing that out because I completely missed it. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Quentin, final thoughts on this issue. Stuff we didn't get to or stuff you want to circle back to. It's yours. Um, I mean, there's there's always so many different things you can say about Excalibur. But um, I just, like I said, I love the interpersonal aspect. I think that's been the part of it I've loved most of all is just seeing how the characters relate to one another and the different dynamic that they sort of show. I'm a big Megan fan, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and um, I love what they do with her as, as she moves through the series. But um, I love the, I guess the one thing I'd like to touch on is I, I love how Megan looks after everybody, even in this in, in instance. Like, I'm sure she's probably tired too, but I, I love that she cares about her teammates or her and her partner and her extended family enough to sort of put on a happy face and to, you know, try to, you know, make a meal for them. I thought that was really, really sweet. There's a sweetness to her character that I've always liked. It's very genuine. I think mm -hmm. that comes across really well. And um, it makes you feel for her when she's not being treated properly. Yes. Um, but more and more, she, she finds her way, I think, as she moves to the rest of the series. I don't want to give anything away, but that's my thing is just, Megan's great. And, oh, and of course, like, I mean, <laughs> and I will say no one has ever penciled the classic blue Shadowcat outfit better than Alan Davis. As much as I love John Romita Jr. and other, no one has ever penciled that outfit better than he has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it billows. That's very fair. Yes, yeah. yes, <laughs> um, yes. Like almost like dolman sleeves, but kind of tied off at the wrist. I love the fashion. I was, I would say, the fashion of the book. I love the fashion. Yeah, that's some. I mean, it's it's such a an interesting. They had a very interesting look. Excalibur did. They always have. It's it's great, and Alan captures that really well. Yeah, and I mean, all the times that the characters are wearing casual clothes, too, and we've talked about that. And yeah, for, for I think the entire next issue, is Brian just going to be in his sweatpants? I think so. Oh. I believe, yes, I believe he wears the pajama pants for the entire issue. Okay. <laughs> I just have to say, I'm just, I'm sorry. He was so hot in that issue. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, kind of wanted to ask you about it because you brought it up. And then because we had a comment way early in the podcast that we needed to be talking more about Alan Davis's particular attention to rendering male packages in Excalibur and we haven't actually surprisingly talked about it but that's definitely a feature of next issue yeah it makes I, I still blush reading that issue even now mm -hmm. at 36 my ears and cheeks go red on my home eye <laughs> so, he's a ha ha handsome man isn't he it, it, I mean as an illustration anyway yeah <laughs> 
No, no that's very fair. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, like I, I always say he's not really my type, but at the same time, like I have the picture clear as day of him in those sweatpants in that issue in my head forever indelibly. Kurt looks good in that one too. I mean, Kurt's got his own kind of vibe going on too. I mean, he's quite athletic. <laughs> he is indeed a very flexible man. I want to talk about his specific body language in that issue a lot too. But anyway, we're talking about the other issue now. I'm like too excited to like, it's my favorite issue. Spoiler is number 43. So I'm very, very excited about it. But um, that's going to be interesting. Previews um, for next time. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm really excited. But um, the last thing I just want to do is to quickly spotlight a sword strokes letter because uh, I have a good one here. Um, so this is from Graham Renwick in Edinburgh, Scotland. Dear sword strokes. <laughs> Okay, this is going to be a challenge. Strath, love a duck, stone the crows, shiver me timbers, and have at thee varlet. They've gone and done it now, gov. They've printed me blooming letter. How do I put this subtly? The dialogue in Excalibur stinks. So much for subtlety. Whenever a British character needs to say something, the words come straight out of Dickens' Oliver Twist. Come on, guys. We over in the big pond live in the 20th century, too. I also want to let you know that a chippy in Scotland is a fast food shop selling deep fried fish and french fries chips. Not the sort of thing you want to call Phoenix too often. Excalibur number 35, page 6, who's the chippy with the legs. So dash it all, you bounders. Don't be a bunch of brigands and cads. Please give us some realistic dialogue in Excalibur. (laughs) (laughs) It was something we complained about as well. And Terry Cavanaugh has a very gracious response to this one. Good point, Graham. But we think the problem has been solved with the introduction of our new writer, Alan Davis, a true Brit, if ever there was one. (laughs) Okay. I have thoughts oh, here. Geez, okay. <laughs> I'm you're glad gonna, you picked this letter. You're gonna critique poor Graham's letter. Oh no, no, I'm I'm very much on his side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because Chippy was also not proper slang in 1991. Now, okay, so Chippy is it, it means chick calling a girl or a woman a chippy in 1991 made as much sense as calling her abroad in 2021 this is not slang that anyone is using anywhere on the planet who is of the age of the characters that were supposed to be saying it it would be like going about like americans showing up and going wow that's totally hip yo so i'm completely on this letter writer side (laughs) I'm not taking them at all. It's bad and we should feel bad for doing it. And I didn't even write it, you know, (laughs) but we should feel bad and, and we should do better. That's my feeling. Well, as Terry Kavanaugh points out, it's in the rear view. We're in the Davis era now. My king, I couldn't do it. Excalibur cannot be lost. Other men do as I command. One day the king will come and the sword will rise again. So I think we will wrap things up there other than to thank our lovely guest, Quentin, um, for helping us appropriately celebrate Alan Davis's return. But of course, before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of all the awesome stuff that you get up to. What things would you particularly like to plug for our listeners? What stuff of yours should they be checking out and where can they find you online? Well, um, currently, uh, Record Redux Spice Girls, the second edition, completely revamped and rewritten and Reworked is available now through Amazon, and um, I have a digital store for digital copies um, if people want to do that. My purchase links and where I can be found are on, at Twitter, at the, Q, at the QH Blend. Um, I can also be found over on Instagram at Retro Modern Fly. And um, again, all my sort of links with all my book purchase stuff, uh, any of the albumism articles I write, my podcast links for Music Out of Bounds with my colleague Jerome Graham can all be found there. 
so yeah, that's where I'm, I hang out in my corner of the interwebs and uh, just drop me a line at any time and say hello. I'll, <laughs> I'll be around. <laughs> I really hope we get like at least one listener and hopefully several listeners asking you those questions about Spice Girls. Oh yeah. I mean, I, and then I, I retweet like the Claremont run and, and the, oh gosh, oh golly podcast on my um, Twitter main all the time. So I have like a lot of my music friends, like, what is that? Or what does that mean? And I'm like, I'm like, guys, come on. You know, I, I'm a comic book person. And so I'll tell them what it is and it's great. Oh my so. God. That's funny. Thank you for that. And I love that. <laughs> oh yeah. You guys are great. I'm, and thank you guys for having me. This was really awesome. And uh, definitely was a great way to close my evening. <laughs> Uh, no, it's, it's thrilling for me to revisit your love for this issue, and thank you so much again. Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to episode 45, discussing Excalibur 43, Home Comforts. As I mentioned, my favorite issue, one of my top three comics of all time. I can barely wait to talk about it. My good vibes are already flowing. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos that we've done for many of our episodes, um, available through the Vox Popcast YouTube channel or via our website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, which is how Quentin and got in touch with us so please do let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and matt for sharing my enthusiasm for this issue thank you quentin for getting us even more excited thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian and platform music for our truly epic theme song play us out and we're done